I went to the dentist last week. And my dentist is a good friend. He's got a friend that's a dentist that played for me at Creighton. Tim Durham is oh, really? his name. Tim Durham. And when I went in the other day, uh, Morrison, Mike Morrison, the man, he said, Jerry, you fine? You know, that's fine. He said, Jerry, I was with Tim the other day. I said, okay. He said, uh, and he had me cracking up. I said, what about? I said, because Tim, Mr. No Personality. <laughs> he said, yeah, I know it, but he said, y'all was playing against, he said, I can't remember who he said y'all were playing against, but he said, the situation, and you came out to the mound, and you told him he was pitching. You told him you wanted him to hit the next guy. And Tim, you know, huh? Tim's timid. I mean, he was... He wasn't a very aggressive kid. Uh, and, and and Tim said, Mike said, Tim told me, Jerry Bart, Coach Barkley told me to hit this next guy. He said, the next guy was Joe Carter. I said, yeah, we were playing Wichita State. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, he said, and he said, Tim, Tim said, man, Coach Barkley said, you better hit him too. <laughs> so he said, I threw, he said, I'd hit him, but I threw behind him. I said, he said, Coach Barkley said, that ain't good enough, man. You, <laughs> he said, Marcus said, Tim said, man, I was scared to hit Joe Carter, man. How that guy come out after me? <laughs> I said, man, you got, I said, yeah, I remember the situation. <laughs> you had me crack it up. You but, remember it, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Why did you want him to hit Joe Carter? Carter been killing us, man. <laughs> Carter being caught. Joe Carter was the man. This kid could hit. I mean, obviously he could hit. Yeah. Hey, hold the metal bat up there. <laughs> I said, man, this is. Hey, hey, and listen, Joe Carter was the stud on that team. But they had a third baseman that was just as studly as, 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 as Joe. And his name was Bob Bomarito. Bomarito. You think he. And he could hit. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I said, put some air in between those guys and feet in the ground. Make them, those guys are digging in up to their ankles, man, and just getting in a. I said, man, I said, you need to light somebody up. <laughs> but so, so, no, no, I said, so Joe didn't do anything wrong. Joe didn't do anything wrong. You just wanted to get him on his. On I have his to send a message to this guy, man. I said, come on, man. Man, you lighten up on us, Joe. Uh, we going to come at you, man. You know what I mean? Uh, I won't throw at you if you butt, Joe. (laughs) Welcome to Where I Come From, a podcast devoted to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Jerry Barty former St. Louis Cardinals minor leaguer, Creighton baseball coach, Omaha South principal, and OPS assistant superintendent. We talked about living in the back of a semi-trailer truck in segregated Omaha, the day he got kicked out of a high school baseball game, how he stayed out of Vietnam, raising a major league son, Tamara, who's now first base coach for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and what happened to black baseball in America. No insulation, no. no heating, no. No, no cool, no. no electricity. No, but it was home. Don't come to me and tell me respect. What have you done to earn respect? Tell me what you've done. Show me. Right. Show me more than anything what you've done to earn respect. Respect will come when you earn it. You just, uh, respect ain't something I reach in the pocket and here you got it and you got it. No, 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 no. I still haven't let that go. 
then then a day goes by, the Jerry Barty and realize how blessed he is today. Come a long way. You know, you got talk. your you got your pirate shirt on. This is my workout gear. I just come from the gym, man. Before, yeah, he sends me all kind of gear, and I told him, I said, I'll promote you, man. You send me the gear, I'll promote it back here. So, yeah. you, uh, I wish you could see where we're sitting this morning. Jerry Barty's beautiful back porch overlooking 20 acres north of Omaha. He and his wife bought it almost 30 years ago. You're going to hear some background noise, some birds chirping, a little traffic. I hope it's not too much of a distraction. So I do. I watch them every night, and uh, they haven't been playing well. The Pirates is the only organization that do what they call an annual dad's trip. It's Clint Hurdle's idea. Clint Hurdle's a great guy. Um, a dad's and, trip. Well, they 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 have every year. They bring the dads in, and they'll have an afternoon game, uh, primarily on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday, and they'll have the you know the dads ceremonial first pitch. You go out, throw it to your son, and everything. Coaches and players and front office people, all all your dads are invited. Those that want to come. And then they put you up in a, the suite during the game that afternoon. Then after the game, it's a road trip. So the dads get to travel with the team on the team charter plane and everything. They take a four-day road trip. This year was the second year I went. Last year, we went to Atlanta, that brand-new stadium down there. It was beautiful, man. Um, but first time most dads got a chance to live the life of a major leaguer and how those kids are taken care of. Uh, it's a whole different world. There's, and, uh, so where'd you go this year? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, went to the Phillies. Yeah, and uh, Phillies were playing good ball at that time. Gabe, yeah. Gabe Kapler got them playing well. Yeah. yeah. How much has the game changed since you were in the Cardinals organization in 1966 oh. through 1971, you know? Uh, biggest difference is kids today are bigger, faster, stronger, and better athletes. And make more money. Well, <laughs> yeah, make me tons more money because you know what I played. That was just about the time this great, great, uh, not only ball player but American, Kirk Flood, yeah. took his stand. Yeah, and that's the reason these kids today are making that that kind of money. Yeah, yeah. you were in the Cardinals organization when that happened, right? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I was drafted out of Central High School in '66. Signed as a shortstop and got moved to center field a week after I went down to Florida. So they were. Hey, Dirk, they had a gold glove center fielder named Kirk Flood, I man. Say, <laughs> they wanted you to be the next Kirk Flood, huh? Yeah, well. Uh, they said I was too big to play middle infield at that time, you know. Yeah. I was, yeah so. Uh, did you have any concept of what Kirk Flood was doing, or did that. Not, not at that time. Yeah. Not at that time. At 17 years old. You know, you're trying to uh, tie your shoes right. Yeah, tell me away from home for the first time, and uh, you know, and and uh, the first time in my life, in all honesty, that I can remember uh, seriously considering a social issue when Dr. King was was assassinated. Yeah, and uh, we were in spring training at the time that happened. As a matter of fact, and uh, you know, it's like, hey, do we go to report to the camp? Well. Cardinals made it clear this is your job. You better show up. Really? So you were there. April oh, 1968. You're uh, 20 years old, 19 years old. 
and the Cardinals organization was interesting back then because it was there were not a lot of a lot of Southern United States franchises. Uh, no. So you know, Bob Bob has told stories about things that he was going through and Kurt Flood and yeah. spring I mean, training in minor leagues whereas uh, Southern. You that's, know, that's yeah, we, that's right. That's when we got exposed to the southern part of the country, if you will. Cardinals at that time, their southernmost minor league club was probably Little Rock, Arkansas, their Double A franchise. Uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, back in back in that time, was right in the heart of things yeah. in terms of civil rights and stuff of that nature and everything. But Florida, you know, you get to Florida during spring training and everything, and most of the teams at that time were in Florida. As a matter of fact, I don't, I think they were all in Florida. I don't think there was any. Arizona back in sixties, late sixties. Um, so you, you you got exposed to that and everything. Um, but bigotry was rapid throughout the country, north, south, east, and west. Uh, and 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 you you got exposed to it. You know, one of the things that I two things, and, and I'm kind of diverting away from your question, Dirk, that that I kind of regret. And and it's funny that we're having this conversation. Because just in, in the last three days, uh, someone reached out to me. One, every ball player of color back in those times was receiving hate mail. One of the regrets I have is that, you know, I'd get it and I'd take it to the manager. You know, I'm thinking, hey, you know, is this the real deal or what? You know, you show up tonight, you go out on the field, you're going to get shot, you're going right. to get this, get that. So I took it to the manager, expecting them to handle it with authorities and stuff of that nature. Obviously, I didn't get shot, but I'm still here today. Uh, uh, but I never knew what they did with those letters. I never knew if they even reported them. I wish I'd have kept some of those today, but I'm a historical perspective. Yeah, can you imagine having those? Oh, yeah. And I, I guarantee you, in my time, short tenure in the minor leagues, I, had, I, I received at least a half dozen of them. Um, the other regret I had was that I did didn't keep contact with the, the kids that, that came through. We, I played with my old teammates. So Can you rattle off the cities you played in? Uh, the, the, the minor league teams you played in? Yeah, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Lewiston, Idaho, St. Petersburg, Florida, Sarasota, Florida. You know. Little Rock. Go, I, you know, I, I was scheduled there. to go there. Scheduled to go there. at double and, and that was when all this strife was going on down all the you know, and I said and first of all I thought I was good enough to make it to Tulsa Tulsa was a triple A club and I wanted to, go to come to Tulsa because at that time Tulsa was in the American Association and they played Omaha oh, I want to come play in front of their own people that's what I really you know I was I, I just I was homesick I, you do, you know, I, I was, and I wanted to get back in Omaha as often as I could and I wanted to play in Tulsa because I thought I was good enough to play in Tulsa <laughs> but, how, how close did you get to the major leagues? I, I did high A ball. Is it? Do you have any regrets about your minor league career? <laughs> no, no. Uh, given everything that I was exposed to relative to growing up and guidance in my life, um, I don't have any regrets now. Had it been different, if, if, if uh, th uh, this is not a regret, okay? I had an experience. Uh, I turned out to be the man I am today, and my mother's proud of me, and so that's really the primary thing that matters to me. If my mother's proud of her son, and I made her proud, man, life's good. I swear it is. 
But if I could change some things, it would be to have a, a, a as as my sons have in their life, uh, a, a male that says, "Hey, this is what it's going to take to get to this point, to that level, to that." I don't have the. I just want to be a professional baseball player. That's what I want to do. I want to be a professional baseball player. Totally unaware that hey, but there's more than just becoming a base major. I mean, a, a professional baseball player. You know, becomes there's some other steps above that and everything. And so I needed somebody in my life to say, hey, look, you need to do this. You need to do this. Get to this level. You need to that to that level. And you guys, and I didn't have that day to day guidance in in my life. Uh-huh. You you uh you grew up in a home without a father. Yeah, um, my uncle was the primary uh, father figure in my life. My mother's older brother, uh, and he played. You know. He barnstormed around with, with Negro teeth. Now, this teams. is Uncle Dunk, right? Yeah, you remember that. Yeah. yeah. So, Uncle Dunk. You t- remember. Tell the story of Uncle Dunk. Yeah. There's so many stories about Uncle Dunk. And everything. <laughs> but he but was... But he played the Negro Leagues. Well, yeah. Or he, was, or he played against Negro Leagues. He played, right, right. On because the barnstorming the, tour. Right, right, right. See, those, those, those major league Negro teams would travel to town for town, town. So, he played on those teams that played against those teams that come to town and yeah. everything. Uh, as a matter of fact, Dirk, I got a picture downstairs on my wall with uh, my uncle and the team he was in, and the manager of that team is my biological father. Are you serious? Yeah. I've, uh, I've seen my biological father, physically seen him once in my life, and it was at my grandfather's funeral. He was back in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, he came, and he was there, and I and my other uncle, not Uncle Dunk, but his brother, my mother's other brother, introduced me to him, introduced us and everything. Um, How old were you? Let's see, I'll be 70 in two weeks and uh, 40, in the early 40s. What was that experience like? I, you know, for me, it was kind of an out-of-body experience for me because you know, I looked at him uh, after my uncle introduced us and I simply did I don't know where these words came from I said can I hug you and uh, he, yes I hugged the guy um, he hugged me and it lasted for about 15 seconds and that was it you forgave him that hug did it all for me but I was able to move on never saw him again we never talked again he had a family down in Arizona. He passed away in Arizona uh, 15 years ago, something like that. But, you know, hey, you know, uh, my mom did all right with us, three of us. Did you grow up wondering where he was, who he was? Not until I got later on in life. As I, as I got older in life and, and, and I began to, you know, as you, as you, as, as it, beca- it became fashionable 10, 15 years ago to start looking back in your... In your yeah. yeah. See, the, when that became fashionable, then I began to wonder, you know. But before that, man, my family that I had, my family that I, that I finally had myself, plus my family, my mother, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, that's my family. That's what I grew up. You know, when, I, when my mother bought me and my brother and my sister to Omaha, we lived with Uncle Dunk and Aunt Rose and their kids. We all lived in that extended family setting in South Omaha. So you were born in? Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. 1948. July 3rd, by the way. Why did your mother bring you up? Well, because Uncle Dunk was up here 
Uh, he got up here at packing houses, like most blacks that came from the South, packing houses bought them all here. Uh, and 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 my uncle Doc told my mother, you, you need to get your kids out of there uh, and get them up here. You know, they can go to school up here. And so my aunt Rose and her two daughters, my mother and her three kids, and Uncle Dunk was up here with his two sons. And we all lived in the same little <laughs> trailer, if you will. It wasn't a trailer house. It was a back semi-trailer truck, the back end of it, over in South Omaha. You lived in the back of a semi-trailer truck. Uh-huh. If you, Dirk, if you would research a story with the World Hurl that Dan Offenberger wrote. You remember Dan Offenberger? I know the name. He was SID at Creighton when Eddie Sutton and Tom Abke was around. He hired Bruce Rasmussen, as a matter of fact. Dan Offenberger wrote a story called Boxcars to Box Seats. If you re- if you research that, they'll have it. You could get it. And it was about me and my life. It was when I got named Creighton Baseball Coach. And Creighton's baseball coach, if Creighton's not in the College World Series, they're on the tournament committee. And the tournament committee said that Rosebud sit in those black seats. So Offenberger said, he's a journalist by trade. And so he had said, and he knew my background when I came to Omaha. We lived in what he called a boxcar. And so the headlines, he wrote a story, you know, boxcars to box seats. And picture me sitting in the, in the, with the tournament committee in the box seats of Rosebud and everything. But yeah, we lived in it. Was some, it comes to my uncle. When I say my uncle, my grandmother on my mother's side, my grandmother's brother, who was born in Springfield, he had come up here years before my mother and Uncle Duncan at Rose, and he worked in. He lived in South Omaha, and he and he worked at Sat Sachs is a, some kind of is a company over in South Omaha. I forgot the name of it. The building is still there because I still see his name every time I go over to South Omaha. But he, he lived between, he had a house, little bitty shack thing, between what was then Wilson's packing house and Swift's packing house. And there were some chutes, livestock were huge, that would go right across from Wilson's to, to Swift and Swift to Wilson's cattle chutes. And they were right across the gravel road from where we lived. So we'd hang up on that fence, watch cattle get driven. But all he had, he had his family, Uncle Herman, he had his family. And he, he just lived in like a two-room house, you know. But he had this semi-trailer truck in the back. It was just, you know, and he says, this is all I got, but you're more than welcome. So we, you know, when so we no, came up, no insulation, no, no heating, no, no, no cool, no, no electricity. No, but it was home. No electricity, no water. We, no, no. It's literally the back of a truck. Yeah, yeah. We dressed it up, my, my, my uncle and my mother and my aunt. Yeah, they made it home, made it comfortable. Yeah. How, yep. how long did you live there? I couldn't, I'd have to ask. And my mother, you know, my uncle and my aunt, uh, all all the adults, my mother's the only surviving adult in that group right now. And she's, you know, she's in early stages of Alzheimer's, you know. Uh, but I could, we weren't in that long, couldn't have been more than a year, I, I wouldn't think. I wouldn't think because the first recognition. That was your, that was your first place though? In Omaha. The right. first place I, and then the, the place I remember first that I can recollect where we lived and still lived in that extended family situation was when we left there and came to North Omaha, uh, 2410 Indiana Street, okay. which was directly right up the street from what was then Kellum Pool. Uncle Dunk was your baseball influence, mm-hmm. your first one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you remember about him? 
Oh, uh, you know what I remember about my dunk, my uncle dunk mostly is first of all how to how to treat people. That's the first foremost. I mean, if you want to talk about baseball and what I remember about him, baseball, he always told us you have fun playing baseball. Baseball is a game. He says, and you have fun every moment you're out there. If you're not having fun, then you don't need to be out there. Right. So he, he just taught us how to enjoy it and, and keep things in the proper perspective. Uh, wasn't, my uncle Doug was an athlete, swimmer, track, basketball, baseball, okay, and tennis, and tennis, um, back in Springfield. Um, but, and, and with track and basketball probably being his fortes, if you will, but fundamentally, he was never taught how to play the game. Mm. So therefore, he couldn't teach fundamentals. Uh, they out there on just athletic ability, you know. Uh, uh, and so he taught me the love of the game. And I think that's important. I think, I think that's, that's important in terms of if you want to teach a young youngster about baseball, teach him or her how to play baseball and everything. I've always, from my teaching from Uncle Doug, I've always professed, you got to get them to love the game first. If you get them to love the game, then teaching them the game will become easy. Yeah, they want to learn it. Yes, yes. So so that's what I get from, got the primary thing I got from my Uncle Doug. Now, have fun. You know, like I said, have fun and everything. And 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 respect, respect the game, meaning everybody involved in the game. Right. You know, just, just respect. He taught again. I said, for for an uneducated man, formal education. I gotta always stress that that when you and I sat together, what almost fifteen years ago. It's, I guess I don't remember how long ago when you came to my office up there, but you know. I'm sure as I talked about Uncle Duck, I talk, I probably, some. I'm sure I had to say one of the most educated, not formally, but one of the most educated men with good common sense. You know, Jerry, the older I get, the more I understand the difference. Uh, oh, yeah. That, that, that education does not necessarily mean uh, no. u- useful education. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that formal stuff. It's good. We need it. We need it. That's part of our society to do everything. But education, you know, is... is Education is being able to fix your air conditioner. Hello. I mean, honestly, <laughs> seriously, it's, it's stuff like seriously. that. Seriously. Yeah. Education is me up on a ladder yesterday, which I had no business on, but I'm cleaning out this gutter because after that hard wash we, uh, rain we had the night before, I said, I got water overflowing on that gutter up right. there. I got I, I to right. find out what's happening. That's all. You're right, Dirk. Yeah. You're right. And uh, uh, education is... is, is, is Leaving the house early that morning as a youngster, going to Coons Park, playing basketball all day, and being back before dark—that's education. Yeah. That's that's learning the world in which you live in, right. and the world in which you must survive in, the world in which hopefully someday you will lead. Right. I mean, it, it's uh, yeah, education is is it's broad. So but, now, so now we're getting somewhere. This is the 1950s in in North Omaha. And I mean, this is like the sweet spot of this is the athletic cocoon in the city's history, 1950s North Omaha. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now let me say this, Dirk, because you make that, and I agree with you and everything. But all due respect to my colleagues and my dear friends in South Omaha, South Omaha is some pretty damn good athletes. <laughs> I just right. want to let you right. know that, you're okay? Right. Right. So if 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 during this podcast, one of some... my buddies and one of my friends or associates or colleagues from South Omaha, hey, listen to me now. Okay, I'm giving you some love. Marlon okay. was the South Omaha guy. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Marlon was, and Marlon just happened to be one to get mentioned. There's a bunch of South Omaha guys and young ladies that are tremendous, tremendous athletes. And, you know, a lot of my Polish colleagues and families and everything. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You got people like the Sherlock's, the Remington's. The, I mean, come on. I mean, those, uh, those wrestlers whose names I can't even pronounce. <laughs> yeah, the what? Yeah, those. <laughs> uh, right, the ones that I had to struggle with pronouncing at graduation time in South Omaha. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> I spent more time working on that than I did anything. <laughs> I bet. I bet. How do I say this kid's name? Yeah, man. Because you know. You don't want to mess it up at graduation, man. <laughs> grandma and grandma and mom and daddy's out there. <laughs> they, they might not. They, they might still be speaking Polish when they complain to you, yeah. but they'll find a way. That's right. So, so, now, so yeah, it's a yeah. It was it was some hard time. And again, let me let me and you remember Rodney Weed because yeah. I turned you on to Rodney Weed one time as you were doing your project, and and you talked with him. I don't know if he he ever called you because about four or five years later. He wanted to ask you a question or something. I said, well, Dirk, yeah, I didn't have a number, but I said, you can get him at the World Herald, you know. But anyway, uh, Roddy sheds a great perspective on, on the athletes back in the day. Again, I go back. All of those grandfathers and fathers matriculated up here from the South and everything because of the packing houses, even in South Omaha, even the Polish, my, my Czechs and Polish wonderful families in South Omaha and everything. That's hard work, man. I mean, those, you ever shake hands with some of those guys that worked there? I mean, this was just, so, those kids running around in the 50s and the 60s and everything, they're the products of some very, the strongest of the strong, okay? The survivors. Hard working ethic, or work ethic. You know, they do, that all gets passed along generation after generation generation. That's critical in the athletic arena, critical. And so we were blessed, if you will, with that that type of work ethic and legacy passed down to us. It wasn't by design, just life. Just the life. family unit was strong back then too. I mean, yeah, sometimes yeah. it was neighborhood family. Yep, yep, that extended family thing I'm telling you about and everything. You're absolutely right. Um, it's a whole different world today. People are more insular, right? Well, don't don't quite grasp the concept of true family, what family is really about and everything. Uh, We got so hung up on this, you disrespected me and stuff and all of that stuff. Come on, man. Well, I don't know where that became fashionable, but we lost something in that. Respect is yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Please, thank you. So what you're saying is it became, rather than being who are you respecting, it became more about who's disrespecting you. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and and that's totally, totally turned around. That's backwards. That's wrong. You know, this is talking about earning respect. you got to earn respect. First of all, don't come to me telling me respect. What have you done to earn respect? 
tell me what you've done. Show me. Right. Show me more than anything what you've done to earn respect. Respect will come when you earn it. You just, uh, respect ain't something I reach in the pocket and here you got it and you got it. No, 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 no. You got to earn it. And, and, and that got lost. That, that really got lost. But the family structure, uh, obviously, in my opinion, was critical. It was key. It was key uh, to um, the way um, society has turned out uh, today. What's interesting is what you, the family, you grew up without a dad. Uh, a biological dad. A biological dad. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's right. Um, and, you know, you grew up, I think, in poverty. Yeah. <laughs> so... If I look at those two factors, it, a, a lot of people around you in North Omaha at that time did have a fa- did have a biological father with them, right? Uh, most of the most of my buddies that I grew up with and ran around with, and and I'm going to high school now. Um, I can't think of one whose father wasn't in the home with them. So you were unusual in that regard. In my regards, the group that I ran around with, and, and a lot of those families were. I don't want to say strong financial positions, but... They were better off than we were. They were more stable financially. Yeah. 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 So, it's interesting that, in some ways, your family was kind of a a look at what was coming 20, 30 years down the road in the community, Un, right? Un, uh, unbeknownst, as you look back and reflect back 30, 40, 50 years, you could say that, one could say it, that. But at that time, uh, that wasn't the norm. Right. It wasn't the norm. The that, norm that, yeah. was have mom and dad, a mother, a family structure, have the, the, the solid family structure and everything, where mom could stay at home. My mother had to work. You know, my mother wasn't with us twenty four seven. Two jobs. Yeah, was, yeah, but uh, 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 you know, so but 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 that's all we knew. So here's family. my question. Mm-hmm. How did you overcome those those two factors? I didn't think at that time growing up I had anything to overcome. I know, but but looking back at it, you can see well, that. Well, uh, love. My mother had the foresight to get her brother involved in our lives, to make sure that we had a positive male influence in our lives. People like Rodney Weed. Uh, my mother, first of all, my mother also said you're going to be involved in church, Claire Methodist Church, of which they had at that time North Omaha had a. Uh, the black churches had a, a youth softball league that we played in, and Rodney Weed was our coach. Uh, I often give Rodney a hard time, and Rodney's a great man. Uh, 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 that he told me how good a coach he was, I said, you had players. You had players. All you had to do was make sure that after the game, we had ice cream and cookies, man. That, that, we, had, we had players. I give him a hard time about that today, and we laugh and joke about it and everything, but... We did had, had players, and, and and it was a neighborhood church against other black neighborhood churches, and guys that I went to high school with and everything played on some of these other 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 teams and everything. Uh, but that's a, and that was the first introduction I had to competition. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it was supposed to be fun and games, now it was it was it was a real deal because you know we. We'd go to school with those guys, you know, and we say, man, you know, it's, we, it's us, man. It's, so, and, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of my buddies, I've talked about high school buddies, and there's only, 
know, not many of us left, but uh, uh, they hear the same thing. If you went to Cla if you played and grew up on Pinckney Street area and went to Clare Methodist and played on our softball team, we were always a team to beat. We were always the team to beat, bar none. <laughs> <laughs> we had bragging rights. We've had bragging rights now for sixty years because I was 10, 11 years old at that time. Right. Yeah. So, you don't let people forget it, huh? Oh, hey. <laughs> I can remember when I was in junior high. And before the Gene Epi Boys Club, which is now I think is the Hope Center, I believe, down on 20th Street. It was, a, I remember when it got built. And the, the, it, while it was being constructed, the Boys Club set up a satellite summer club down on the field at Horseman Junior High. Bob Rose and John Johnette was running it. I don't know if you know Mr. John. I know the name, yeah. Uh, Burke High School. Yeah. And, uh, he passed away. Just a wonderful man. And I can remember, and I was in junior high. And we played games, different games down there at that summer camp, if you will, at the Orange Man. And we played softball games and stuff and all that stuff. And Mr. John Eck came to me one day. He knew I was, told him who I was. He said, you, ever play, you play baseball? I said, yeah, I play baseball. I love baseball. Said, you ever play? I said, no, I never played on a baseball, real baseball team, playing church softball. Said, no, man. He said, well, I, I got a team. You want to try out? I said, I don't even know what trying out is. Try out? You mean try out? Yeah, I was always on a team. What do you mean? I never remember trying out for a team. This is a new world to me, you know. So he said, I said, well, where, where is this? And he says, well, I was Benson High, across the street from Benson, Benson Park. And I said, man, where is that at? That was West. Come yeah. on for me. He says, I come pick you up every day. Man, that man came by and picked me up every day to go out there and practice and play. And played with his sons. Ron and Gerald was a little younger there, but Ron Johnette. Um, and, and I fell in love with that man. Huh. Fell in love with Mr. Johnette. And, uh, you know, because that was the first, and little did I know at that time that that was going to be my ex first experience to what my baseball career was going to be like because I was the only black kid on that team. I only played one year with it. Uh, because then, as I look back and look, you know, on the teams that I played for, there was just one or two of us black kids on the baseball team at Central. Go to the Cardinals after Central. Maybe three or four black kids, three or four Latin kids, you know. So I was predominantly a white experience in, in competitive baseball for me and everything. Uh, but but it it it's. It, it's a, it's amazing to reflect back and look at the different experiences and and, and again they weren't viewed at that time in seventy as hardships. It's the way life is supposed to be. And please understand what I'm about to say. Seventeen year old, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen year old, ten, eleven, twelve year old Jerry Bartin and everything. I embraced what it was that I was living because that was life. That was my life. I was under, that's the way it was supposed to be. Just like my white 
teammates embraced entitlement as a white kid in this world. They embraced that because I'm sure their mind said, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. You know, and uh, uh, as I grew older and began to understand and reflect back on those kind of situations, and uh, I don't have any regrets as we talked earlier and everything, Gerdirk, about uh, how I viewed it then, because like I said, I was, I was, I was young, I was young, I was you know, more important thing to look at and, and to comprehend. Um, and one thing I had going for me though, I wasn't, I wasn't into girls and I was into baseball, right. you know, that kind of kept me on the track. And so, um, but, but I, I reflect back on that and I'm thinking, as I got older, I began to say, okay, boy, that's the way that situation was, that's the way the situation I told you, Gordon Sinclair, you know, the guy yeah. I played with in Lewis and Idol, he called me and I said, Gordon, who was our manager up there? And he says, Ray Hathaway. I said, Ray Hathaway from North Carolina. Yep. I said, yeah, I remember some things about Ray that today wouldn't be politically correct. Today, I would react differently to them. Uh, you know, he would not towards us, but to an opposing player, throw the N-word out, and then look us in the face as we look at him and apologize. Yeah, but it would happen again and again and again, and, and yet. That, that's the that's the type of stuff you were dealing with in Omaha as 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 a player. I know that was in the minors, but what, that that type of stuff was also happening to you in Omaha. Well, in terms of in terms of, of uh, bigotry. Well, you're or, talking about the way life was when I was 13, 14, 15. Yeah. Uh, you. You reflect a little bit differently on it now, and I'm just curious. Concrete situations, uh, specific situations. What are we talking about? What What does your mind go back to in 1962 and think uh, that was <clears throat> that was not fair to a young black kid? And I would have responded differently today. Okay, uh, and again, I probably wouldn't have gotten exposed to it to that degree until I got to be a sophomore at Central. So, okay, so you go back, and I was the fall of 63 is when I got to Central, and everything, because that became the first uh, integrated setting that I'd been in, okay, in terms of when I played the one year with Mr. Johnette and his team out there, Mr. Johnette wouldn't have none of that stuff. I mean, he was, that's, that's Mr. Johnette. And so, uh, um, and not that any other coach would have it, but unbeknownst to them, it occurred and everything. Uh, there, there were situations in, you know, in my high school career, not so much at Central High School, but playing the game and, and the opposition and things like that. The only time I ever got kicked out of high school, a high school game, I'm not proud of this, of getting kicked out, okay? Because I, I pride myself on being a positive role model, and I just, I just don't. Uh, arguing with, with uh, getting kicked out of a game just was unacceptable and everything. Yeah, but I got, I got I got called a name that hurt and cut deep by an opposition player, and uh, 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 and 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 this is a fine young man today, fine man, fine man. But at the time he, you know, and so I, his, yeah, I went, I went after him. And, Oh, you know who he was today, huh? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I know him. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, and again, I reiterate, fine man. Right. Okay. Um, uh, but the umpire kicked us both out. So the catcher said, you're batting? Yeah. The catcher mm-hmm. says something to you? Yeah. And called me the N-word. And, uh, and the umpire's standing right there. And so I said, time out. Oh. And I stepped out. And I said, what did you say? I'm home with Mickey. And he stood up and said it again. I'm, well, I, I went after him then. I, and I you know, I was, now now when I got kicked out, because this was my senior year and, and late in the season, and I was about to be drafted. So I'm thinking, oh, man. Wonder what this does to my chances. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I was, I was, I'm an emotional guy. They're very, always have been. And uh, uh, I remember after that game, uh, we played at Boyd Park, and I live. My mother lives at 2502 Ames today, five blocks from Boyd Park. So uh, after the game, I'm gonna walk home. You know, I, I had to reflect. What did I just do? But I didn't. I was hurt. I was hurt. And I reacted, and I, my uncle Doc always said, "You got to always be in control. You have to be in control of your own self." And I let myself get out there, and every now I apologize because I get emotional about it now. But as I'm walking home, a car pulls up beside me, and it's the home plate umpire. He said, "Jerry, would you like a ride?" I said, "No, but can I ask you a question?" Why'd you let that go that far? You heard, and he couldn't even answer. He could not answer. And I said, thanks for the offer. I, 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 and I needed to walk home. I really did and everything. But, but I, and, 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 and to me, that was, that wasn't the, for me, the, that wasn't the icing on the cake for that situation for me, but it was eye-opening about the world that I was living in. Yeah, that's the first time I've been exposed to that. You know, because when you when you when you're in the athletic arena dirt and if you're successful, then the acceptance level for not only teammates but your opponents is 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 is, is greater. If you, you know, if you're good, right. people they, they people love a winner. I mean, that's just it. Um and 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 I was always successful in baseball around here. And so, you know, I never got, but this right here was, but the, the icing on the cake for me in that whole situation was when I went to school the next day. And the athletic director called me in the office and asked me, Jerry, what happened? I said, well, mm-hmm. the kid called me a name and everything and I didn't particularly care for it. I thought I gave the umpire an opportunity to, to handle the situation. And he didn't, so uh, I handled it. Yeah, I handled it. Got kicked out of the game. He said, tell me exactly what happened. I said, the kid called me a name. He said, what did he call you? I wasn't comfortable back then, nor am I comfortable today to a white guy using that term, and he wanted me, and he literally made me tell him, use that word, what that kid called me. He knew. The coaches told him everything. But he got perverse pleasure out of hearing me say that that kid called me an idiot. And I lost all respect for that guy, that, that guy, for that day. And to this day, I, I don't particularly, I don't have a high re- regard for him. And 
themselves. So two, two white adults let you down in that situation. In my opinion, the umpire and my the athletic umpire director. and your athletic director. Yeah. There's probably a lesson there, right? I would hope. <laughs> no, I mean seriously, yeah. like yeah. people. Yeah. You you expect adults to make the right decision? I thought I was doing. I thought I was handling it right. As a kid, as the as the minor in the situation. Uh, one of the minors, because the catcher was the other one, and everything, and uh, yeah, and boy, I can't say enough about the gentleman he is today. I mean, that I mean, that just. Have you ever talked to him about it? I have not. I have not. I know that he has talked to some colleagues, friends of mine, to what some that he played college ball with that are friends of mine and everything. They've talked. They bought that up and everything. And to this day, he regrets that all day. And I said, and I told my buddy, I said, you know what? I'd really like. To, get together with him and just hug him you know I'm a, I'm a hugger and so uh, you know but it's easier for you to forgive him than it is the athletic director and the umpire yeah 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 and to this umpire I don't even know that I don't remember the umpire's name umpire walked in here today I wouldn't know it but I know that late director what's interesting is you grow up at that age at least I did as a white kid you grow up thinking that adults are going to make the right decisions and I think black teenagers often, back then especially, recognized that oftentimes it was the adults who let them down. Well, you know? as, as time went on, at the time, see, there's that family thing coming in stronger back then. You respected all adults. Right. You didn't disrespect any adults. You respected adults. What they said, you did. That's it. That's the way you were raised. That was, you know, that's it. And maybe it was situations similar to that time after time after time again to where the respect thing started going out the window. Maybe. I don't know. I've done any research on that. You know, but I know for me though that incident with those two adults had a great impact on me. It was eye-opening. Um, it's a lesson learned. Uh, I've become stronger because of them as time has gone on. And here we are, 51 years, two years, three years later. I still haven't let that go. What was the lesson that you learned? Oh, first and foremost, I reflect back to the lesson my uncle Doc told me. I have to be in control. Okay. I, I, you know what? I'm trying to think, how would I handle that, different, that situation different when the kid called the name? And I just time out. And I should have said, instead of just looking at them, I would say, oh, did you hear what he said? Just to get a response for him. Because I, what I did was I, I stepped out of the box. And, you know, it's a time blue. And I looked at him. And I expected my look at him, the umpire, because the catcher was still in the, in the squad. To say, and then I said, what'd you say? And he stood up then. And he kept standing up. My point being is, he was about three inches taller now. <laughs> he was like John Wayne unfolding up. But, and he, just as brassly, said it again. And umpire never did a thing. I mean, I mean, knew he wasn't going to do it by that time. Well, this guy done stood up like, okay, it's on now. So I wasn't, I'm not, I'd rather hit than be hit. <laughs> so, so I grabbed this guy and everything. And, and, but, but. So uh -huh. lesson one is being control. But, but what's. What was the other lesson you learned from that? Can I trust white adults in situations like that to do the right thing? 
because I knew what the right thing was. The right thing was to let the supervising adult in the situation handle the situation. I was taught that. And I did that. I thought I did it. I thought I did it the best way I knew how. But, uh, and again, too, I got you got, I got to admit that there was some peer pressure along the other day because when he said it the second way, I had some friends who was at the game and everything, and the backstop and home plate at Boyd Park, I mean, this right there, you can hear everything. He said, well, yeah, I got buddies. Ooh, well, you know, it was on then. You know, but bottom line is. so. But what you're talking about, I interrupted your bottom that's line. That's okay. That's okay. But what you're talking about, I think, is something that a lot of people of your age and your race were going through at that time, <laughs> which is, wait a second, I can't trust adults to make the right decision. And that that's like that was like a revolutionary oh, uh, epiphany for a lot of people. Absolutely. But again, Jerry Barty back in those days, you know, again, when, when Jerry Barty was off the playing field, my self-esteem went down. I mean, I wore thick glasses, real thick glasses. So my self-confidence when I was off the baseball field sunk. Every time I crossed that white line, though, I'm sorry, this is my world now. I was a totally transformation, a different person, uh, Dirk. And, and, and human nature is you want to feel good about yourself. So if... If I felt good about myself in that arena, I spent a lot of time in that arena. The more time you spend doing something, the more proficient you become at it. That's how I became proficient at baseball because of my self-esteem or lack of. Why was your Why was your self-esteem low off the field? Glasses. <laughs> uh, I had real thick lips. Uh, was ridiculed. You didn't like the way you looked. Because of the ridicule that I got, I didn't. Okay. I love me some me, if somebody once said. I mean, Jerry Barty today. And I started doing that, though, because after I signed out of high school, you know, I was, my mom, I could afford contacts. I could get out of these glasses. So I was doing, I was working on a transformation, a makeover, if you will, uh, back then. Because I knew what made me, what I didn't like about me. I didn't like these glasses. But hell, I could see. That's all my mother could afford. You know, God bless her. She got should tell you today they didn't get everything they wanted but they got everything they needed and and we did you know what is she 95 years old no no she's not that old no my mother let's say I'm gonna be 70 and in September she'll be 87 87, 87. yeah so she had you when she was 17 mm -hmm. yeah yep yep wow yeah so uh uh Time out here to step way back from the situation. You're the child of a 17-year-old black mother in Springfield, Missouri in 1948. 70 years later, you're sitting on a porch on an acreage in north, in north of Omaha, having retired from being a, a high school principal and an assistant superintendent. And I think the first... I think the first black coach at Creighton. Yeah, I was the second one. Let's get back to the main point. Okay. That's remarkable. Dirk, every day, my wife and I sit out here 
have a cocktail and talk about how blessed we are. Don't think for a moment Jerry Barty don't know how blessed he is. How, how, and we reflect on back where it came from. My, my, my wife came up in a setting that was a little bit more affluent than, than what I grew up uh, in. But the bottom line is we had to work for what we got. And it took a team, took both of us. It took being soulmates and, 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 and working hard and raising three kids and but you're right that, that a day goes by Derek, that Jerry Barty doesn't realize how blessed he is today come a long way then off burger coined it right from boxcars to box seats there's two critical transitions though and I'm sure there's more than two but there's two that I want to highlight um you got you. You left the minor leagues in 1971. You you gave up your baseball career. Yes. Just briefly, why? Well, one, I, I wanted. I wasn't progressing as fast as I wanted to. Uh, second of all, it was uh, clear you were not going to be the next Kurt Flood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was clear that you know. I'm sorry, man. You know, because they had. They had other guys, minor league outfielders, and they had Bobby Tolan and Ted Savage, and, and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, they said the number one draft pick in our class was an outfield in my class, Leroy Lee, man. Those guys thinking, man. They were looking for the next Kurt Flood. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of competition. Hey, baby, hey, man, if you'd have left me a shortstop, I might have been able to beat out <laughs> Dow Maxville. You know, I can beat out. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, I don't know, Dirk. It, it okay, was, so you uh, walked away at 23 yeah, years old. Yeah, I did. and But I made a concerted decision. Okay, you, you walk away. You can't look back, son. You can't regret what you, if you walk away. If you stay, you can't regret you stayed. Okay. But whatever you decide, make the decision and move forward with it. Everything, and it was hard because all I had, no, all I knew was baseball at the time. I didn't know anything else. Oh, I can't imagine. What that That's all there. I did was baseball. But but here's the reason I bring it up: the transition is really critical because you come back to to North Omaha at 23 years old, married without a degree, married without a degree, no college, not one college credit, <laughs> and it's like. This is 1971. It's not like there's a ton of opportunities for 23 year old black kids walking around town. Okay. So what do you do? How did you get? How did you? Here, get, here, here, here's where Jerry Barty and Creighton University married. Okay. <laughs> Jerry Barty comes back. He's not playing. Doesn't have nothing but a high school diploma. My wife is a second year teacher in OPS. She's teaching at Franklin Elementary School. At that time, the district was recruiting minority teachers from this historical black college in what they called the COP program, COP program, I don't know what it stood for. But there was a bunch of uh, uh, Gene Haynes. I was just gonna say Gene Haynes, yeah. Gene Haynes, Mel Mobley, Doug Morrow, Tom Harvey, uh, Sam Crawford, Jim Freeman. Uh, I can go on and on. These are all educators. And I came back, and so they had the softball team, and 
my wife worked at Franklin and a couple of them worked at Franklin, they found out that I wasn't going back to play any baseball. And they said, hey, you know, your husband played, slow pit softball. Come on, man, come out of professional baseball. You want me to play slow pit softball? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I, so as you can tell, by that time, Dirk, the thick glasses were gone. My self-confidence was yeah. changing. Okay? I'm a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so good. But uh, I had no job. I didn't have anything. Uh, one of the guys, two of them on that team, Doug, uh, Sam Crawford and Doug Morrow, who's no longer with us, by the way. Doug was athletic director at Central when William Reed got hired as a football coach. Um, Sam was becoming the principal at then Tech Junior High, which is where the career center is now. And Sam knew I didn't have a job, he says, and he knew I did. we were living in an apartment, and I was looking for another place to stay, my wife and I. We didn't have any kids at the time. And he said, look, I got some rental property. I'll give it to you at a very reasonable price, and i hire you as a security guard at Tech Junior High. He's a principal. <laughs> I said, if you play softball with us. And I said, I didn't have a job. I said, okay. Well, being around those guys every day, those are all, most of them was educators. Uh, after being with them for a year, they made me the coach of the team. I was the youngest one of them. By the the coach of the? Blackhawks softball team. We, you researched the Centennial Softball League. It was the premier softball league around here. Unlike the Curry Curry Crumb League, you know, this was the, the Centennial League was the league. Played games at at Hitchcock and at at Boyd down here, which was on the south side of the, of the street where the soccer fields are now. Tuesdays and Friday nights, and so uh, um, we were we were the one and one A in that league every year because the other one one and one A was a team called Four Seasons Lounge. All these former Creighton athletes, Tom Apke, Tim Powers, Jocko Elkinson, all these guys, uh, they had, and then Harold Weinstein, who was the owner of the Four Seasons Lounge. And so on. Anyway, we'd compete. I mean, we'd go heads and nails. Slow pitch softball was huge back then. Shh, I didn't realize it. You know, I'm coming back. You know, yeah. But this was, at that time, this became my major leagues. You know, and so, and so we were just, oh, talking about competitive. Well, Creighton, at that time, and Apke, was assistant basketball coach to Eddie Sutton at that time at Creighton. And so Apke's, Apke's, he's playing. Du he's dueling it out on slow pitch softball while he's trying to coach. While he's basketball. coaching, yeah, with Eddie Sutton. <laughs> and so, and so, Creighton got contacted by the NCAA because they nationally had a program called the National Youth Sports Program. NYSP is critical program we need today by the way and what it was was it dealt with in the summertime it was 500 minority kids between the ages of 8 and 18 male and female exposing them to our higher education setting so Creighton was the NCAA rep around here and so Creighton said they take it now they're going to have four or 500 kids arriving on campus. They realize, shit, we ain't got no staff to work with these kids. They hired the entire Blackhawks softball team. They were educators. Wow, that's 
and they worked with those kids during the regular school year. So we were the staff. We were the staff there. So what did you do? Well, we had there were structured activities. This is summer time. Field trips. Yeah, five weeks out of summer, six hours a day. That's a great idea, by the way. Kids, ex- just exposing those kids to higher educational setting. See, Dirk, when I grew up down there by Kellum Pool, which wasn't far from Creighton's campus. Like three blocks. Burt Street, right there where the campus starts. They used to have the football stadium there. You got to check the history on this. There was a football stadium there. There was a big concrete wall. Big concrete wall that ran the length of, of Burt from 24th to damn near 30th. I grew up down there. What was on the other side of that wall wasn't for me. It wasn't, you know. White, white Omaha. Yeah, yeah. I didn't Since, know that wall existed. Oh, it was a football stadium. It was a football stadium. Communist and, great wall. But it signified. The Berlin, the Berlin yeah, seriously. Seriously. <laughs> and it signified. It, it sent a signal to us. What's over, whatever's over there ain't for us. We don't know. That interesting. Seriously. That was, you know, that's what we thought in North Omaha. And so, and so, uh, um, NYSP, man, we get get anyway, to make a long story short, at the end of that 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 first year with NYSP, Eddie Sutton, Dan Offenberg, Dan Offenberg was the SID. They came to me and said, We want you. We want to offer you a job. And I said, Well, I was a security guard back at Tech Junior during the school year around my buddies, you know. I mean, Reed was on that staff back then, William Reed, Crawford, Morrow, uh, you know. We, so, and, and he says, I said, doing what? He said, we want you to be the director of intramurals. I said, I said, ah, no, I'm going to go back. And they said, no, Eddie Sutton said, no, you don't understand. Listen, we're going to give you a full ride. Tuition, books, fee, $500 a month stipend. I said, I said, I ain't crazy. And of course, I didn't like, I wasn't wild about school at the time. Right. But I said, this, this, I mean, I know a good deal when I hear one, okay? So, go ahead. So I, I went up there and I ran the intramural program for six years and got my undergraduate degree, got my master's degree. At, uh, you know, they paid for it and everything. Why do you think they did that? One, they needed they needed the real director. Let's be honest with them. Second of all, Tom Abke was critical. Tom Abke knew how my leadership with that Blackout softball team, especially when we played them, how it and and I could Abke telling Sutton, man, this guy can get guys going. This guy, I mean, he really he said we're better athletes than those guys, or better ball players than those guys. But he gets them to a point that we can't beat these guys. So and and he attributed it all to me and my leadership with the Blackhawks, uh, and so I be, began the director of intramurals for 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 I did it for three or four years, three years, three years because the last three years I be, they appointed me the baseball coach. Yeah. So, well, okay. I, I got one more tangent. What the heck did you do as security guard, junior high security guard? I mean, there's got to be some great stories from that, right? Oh man, isn't it? The little little knuckleheads running through that hallway. <laughs> Here come Mr. Marty. Yeah, I said, holy shit. It was, uh, we reflect, we talk about those stories when we get together. So Creighton opens the door. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they sent me to school. And, uh, last three years, I was only there for six years. 
and the last three years I was a baseball coach and I remember sitting in the dugout between games and back then the college world series I was on I was at the college world series on tournament committee and that was that old format where you play seven eight games a day oh my goodness it was just and the tournament committee I literally didn't live at home then I lived out at the I was in the Red Lion Hotel that was the tournament headquarters uh, and so I just got so burnt out after three years of that. And and by that time, too, our sons, our oldest son, was uh, getting ready to graduate from high school, and I knew that college coaches were going to be coming in, recruiting him. And I'm thinking, okay. So wait, what, what year are we talking about? You were the baseball coach at Creighton from 78 to 80. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is during that time? Well, so I knew that he wasn't graduating. I'm sorry, I take it back. He wouldn't graduate. They were beginning to get competitive into baseball. Yeah. No, because they didn't. My oldest didn't graduate until ninety. But 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 okay. Back up just a second. So so you're in the intramural program for three years, and then they take the step of moving you to to be the Creighton baseball coach. Mm-hmm. That's a big. That's a big step. It was. It wasn't. Again, by that time, <clears throat> by the time they were ready to make that move. Eddie Sutton had left Creighton to go to Arkansas. Right. And he had the triplets down there, if you remember those kids, took them to the Final Four. But they took him to the Final Four. Uh, after Aki left, I mean uh, Sutton left, Aki became the athletic director and head basketball coach. That's right. Remember how I got hired? Aki going to Sutton. Man, this guy gets those guys going and everything. So, Apke wanted me as the head baseball coach, okay? Um, so, you know, he, he, that was his choice. That was his decision. He, he, it was just a question of whether I would accept it or not. You know, so. so, you had a good relationship with Apke? Mm-hmm. I had a good relationship with Eddie Sutton. <clears throat> I had a great relationship with Dan Offenberger. So, two, so, so, relationship so at Creek. two pretty rough years or losing seasons, I think, and then you kind of get it going in the third year. Yeah, yeah. Not really. So it started going in the right direction, if you will, and everything. But the bottom line is that Creighton, at that time, treated baseball like a club sport. Huh. Uh, you know, you're competing against, in the Missouri Valley at that time, which is called State, Tulsa, Southern Illinois, I mean, those are the perennial teams that would show up in the College World Series. When I left, uh, Dave Underwood took over. You know, they put a little more money into baseball. You know, when Underwood left and Jim Henry came aboard, they put a lot more money into the program. I mean, that reflects the money is critical. I, I'm going to tell you that. You know that. So I didn't have any uh, regrets about leaving. You just didn't feel like it was a great situation. I felt like I needed to be around more of my sons as they were growing up, okay? Because I was away recruiting, I mean, games and everything. And it was a critical time with my boys, my two boys. And uh, so that played a huge part into it. Plus, my wife is uh, getting tired of me being away, gone quite a bit. And I told her when I was taking a job, it's going to require being away. I said, you know, we got to know what we're getting into. So I said, and I, I said, well, I, if I'm ever going to make a change, i got to make it now. And utilizing the same philosophy as when I walked away from baseball, I'm not going to look back. i got to make this decision. i got to move on. I, I mentioned the first big 
transition that you made was leaving baseball and getting into OPS. The second big transition, in my opinion, was when you leave Creighton. And now it's like, what am I going to do? And you actually substitute taught. I substitute taught. I knew I could get a substitute teaching For a whole year. Yeah, I wanted to by choice. (laughs) By choice. I wanted to learn the district. The best way for me at that time, the easiest and the best way for me to learn the district was to establish a relationship with Marsha Taylor, who was in charge of the sub debts. And uh, so Marsha, I got along well with Marsha. I said, Marsha, I need to sub. I need to sub every day. I said, you don't have to worry about me. I'm going to be there every day, but I want to be in a different building every day. Well, Marsha took care of me. You just wanted to bounce around? I did. I wanted to learn the district. I wanted to learn the district. I wanted to meet people. I was networking. Why did you decide that you wanted to be an educator, though, after after leaving Creighton? One, I married an educator. Right. Two, all those guys on the Blackhawks are educators. Three, outside of my uncle and Rodney Weed, Bob Rose was a big influence in my life. He was an educator. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to do that. That was pretty savvy. I wanted to I wanted to be that, but I don't know you get I, to, didn't, I didn't realize what it would take to become. You get to know everybody being a sub though. Oh yeah, oh, no doubt. And I tell you what, it paid off. It paid off. Because after I subbed, they put me in the classroom at Nathan Hill. After six years at Nathan Hill, I had already got my master's degree in administration and my first administrative job was at South High School as athletic director, assistant principal, and the principal was Joyce Christensen who said, I remember you when I was principal at Bryan Junior High and you were subbed and you did such an outstanding job for us. Paid off. Joyce Christensen. Greatest administrator I ever worked with, Joyce Christensen. Because Joyce Christensen, after I interviewed, because I I thought I was going to go back to Central as athletic director. Joyce interceded with the superintendent and I want him over at South. And, and and Tom Harvey, who was the principal at North High, kind of ran interference for her because Harvey didn't want Barty over at South, over at Central with William Reed as a football coach. He said, those two guys recruit, recruit every athlete in the city. No. So Harvey interceded as the principal at North. So Joyce, he influenced Joyce. Says, Joyce, you need to go after this guy. And so Joyce hired me. And Joyce, greatest move, career move for me, Last thing Joey said to me in that interview session was, I don't hire assistant principals to remain assistant principals. I said, this is where I'm supposed to be at. I was athletic director for six years. Got appointed principal after Joyce retired. I did that for six years. No, for nine years. I did that for nine years. Got my doctorate while I was doing that. Got appointed assistant superintendent. Did that for the last 12 years of my career. You just kind of breezed through everything real quick right there. <laughs> uh, your first job in the district, though, you were you oversaw in-school suspension. At, I, didn't, I didn't even know at, what that was. At Nathan Hale. Yeah, when Ron Anderson, <laughs> Dr. Anderson. They put you at the bottom of the bottom of the ladder. Well, in one sense. Okay. In one sense. But you know what? Those kids that were in there were kids that had in there for a reason. And uh, I was needed. I was needed there at the time to be with those kids. Those are the same, some of the same kids I had in NYSP, that program. 
So I knew them. They knew me. Yeah. Nobody else could interact with them as well as I could. Yeah. What happened to black black baseball? Basketball. <laughs> really? Ex- uh, select teams. Um, but kids, you know, don't, I mean, didn't cost anything to play basketball. It cost money to go. Man, I looked at these kids using those aluminum bats, and then look, oh, some of those bats cost three hundred dollars. I said, I couldn't believe it. And I just, 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 just this was just four or five months ago. Now I had been away from softball and and baseball for twenty five years. Shit, when I bought it, last time I bought a bat and everything, you you know, you could get it, the top of the line bat, aluminum bat, fifty five, sixty bucks. Now, now wait a second though. I mean, Air Jordans cost a hundred bucks, and AAU basketball costs money. It's got to be more than just the money, isn't it? You, you you're talking about when you talk about AAU and. and Get away from that. To this day, I don't understand money for these damn shoes. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. But you ain't going to tell. AEU, they got sponsors to pay for that kind of stuff. Okay? The kids, the families aren't coming out of it. But for baseball, I mean, there are no little league baseball leagues around much anymore. And there are none in North Omaha. You know, if you want to play, you got to go play on these select teams. I remember my oldest son tried out for the Gladiators. He wanted, to, and I didn't. I said, if you want to try out for it, then fine. They cut him. Greatest thing that happened. I didn't realize at the time. I said, man, I don't. Say, hey, you use this as a learning experience. I said, well, I'll teach you everything you need to know. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know. I said, use that to catapult you into, and he did. You know, you, you know, but. Uh, uh, People ask me today about select teams. I said, well, if a kid wants to go somewhere in baseball, you pretty much have to get on the select teams. I mean, that's where you get exposure, good competition, if the families can afford it. Families can't afford it. They can't so it's harder for... Travel with those teams. It's harder for black families to afford oh, that yeah. stuff. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. As a matter of fact, when my son was playing, I don't know if I, we could afford that traveling every day, staying at hotels, the gas, the yeah, I don't know if we could have afforded that. We were better off than most, you know. And you're saying the basketball that I mean the there's a lot of basketball travel too, but it, but but you can develop on your own more. There's no doubt there. Yeah, there's no question. You there. don't you don't have to do that stuff. No, no. Unlike now, look, when I was a kid, there were no select teams. I mean. Jerry Barty, keep in mind what I said, Dirk, about me and my self-esteem. You know, baseball is where I felt good about myself. A Jerry Barty, you get up against a wall and bounce a ball off the wall all day long. All day long. I felt good about short hopping and catching and acting like I'm turning a double play by myself. But I loved it because that's what made me feel good. Okay? Where was your wall? We didn't have no garage, that's for damn sure, okay? I'm trying to think where it would have been against the church, the churchyard, Claire Methodist, over on 25th and Evans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, against the wall down to school. 
anywhere I could find a wall. Bounce it and just and 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 would set up in a manner in which because I'd bounce off the wall and I'd get it like I was throwing the first red double play would set up at an angle to where passing cars would be the base runners. Really? Yeah. yeah. I'd try to try to get that throw off before the bait, that car would get to a certain point and practice and double play by myself. By myself. But kids don't do that nowadays. I got drafted on a Tuesday. They had the draft on a Tuesday. And they couldn't contact you until you graduated from high school. After they drafted you as a high school player. College player difference. Drafted on a Tuesday. Graduated on a Friday. Came immediately home after the graduation ceremony. Didn't go out and party. I'm thinking, yeah, hey, I. Saturday morning, got a call from the scout, Coach Jones from the Cardinals. Saturday afternoon, he was in the house. Saturday evening, I signed a contract with him. Sunday morning, I was on a plane for the first time in my life, away from home for the first time in my life, headed for Sarasota, Florida. Yeah. Eye-opening. Scary. <laughs> Get there, and all these kids that are just signed, you know. And, and, and. It's like baseball boot camp, isn't it? It was. It was. There's 55 of us on this team. 55 on this team, and it was in Sarasota at this complex, and there were five other organizations that had 55 players down there as well. Kept you out of Vietnam. <laughs> Say, I done. Well, baseball didn't. No. I got drafted. You know, I was 1A. I still got the draft card here, too. 1A. And uh, during that offseason in 67, I had to take a physical because I got drafted. I went down to the recruit station, take the physical. I had passed the physical. I said, what? I'm playing professional baseball. <laughs> so I said, okay. I'm thinking, because I'm already, I'm already got my mindset as, okay, I'm going to leave baseball high and I'm getting drafted and I'm going to the war. And they said, because I'm, I'm playing. I'm going he said, look, we found a lot of sugar in your kidney and your urine. We want you to come back six months from now and take another physical. Or we'll send you to our doctors and we'll see. We, I said, no, no, I'll be back in six months. <laughs> so I came back. <laughs> and sure enough, they found some sugar in my urine. They said, we got a kidney issue. And they said, why don't you let us send us to our doctors? We'll get it rectified. I said, no, you reclassify me. And I'll go to my doctor. <laughs> they waited for five, six months. Finally, I got something in the mail to reclassify me to 4F. Never did go to the, to the war. Wow. Never did. I never got my kidneys. Yeah, I'm 70 years old. They may f fail tomorrow. But did you know that Kamira? I, I, you know this obviously. He was the he's the only black major leaguer from Omaha since Bob Gibson. No. Who? Who else? No. Oh, black. You're right. They've been 
don't you talk about it? Think about that. I'm not sure. Did you say the, the only one since? Yes, it's Bob. Just, they might have been the only two ever. Did I, am I missing a black major leaguer from Omaha? It might have been the only two black major leaguers yeah, well, you might be right. ever. Yeah, you might be right. Now that you bring that to my attention, I'm thinking, wait a minute, hold on. But isn't that something? It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. You, you, you once said... You grew up in the Bar T house. Your yep. fir- your first love is baseball, or you don't live in the Bar T house. <laughs> he tell you that. He tells that story. He tells you it takes him to tell you that story. He picked Creighton out of high school what, and played on a CWS team. Yeah. What was that like for you? That whole experience. Oh, it was amazing. First of all, you got to understand too with my connections at Creighton and my spending six years at Creighton. They grew up on that Creighton campus and that NYSP program. So. That program really did what it was supposed to do, influence kids to come to this all-white university and everything. Well, good stuff. Uh, you want to run down and see this picture I'm telling you about real quick? Yeah. It's just right down here. We finish our morning together in the basement where Jerry Barty has a collection of mementos. An autographed 1991 College World Series team poster. Yeah. That's neat. In the hallway, hanging on a wall, there's an old newspaper article, Springfield Stars Sparkle. It's a story about Springfield, Missouri's all-black baseball team from 1945 to 52, and the main character is a man named Carl Thompson, the manager. That's my dad, biologically. I want to read you a piece of that story. Baseball is Carl Thompson's youth elixir. Bring up the subject and 50 years disappear from Thompson's face and a smile grows across it. His eyes are alive. He giggles at times as he thumbs through his tattered scrapbook, the pages worn and coming loose from the book's binding. Every every photograph taped to a page has a story. Each yellowed newspaper clipping carries a memory, a record of his team, the Hyde Park Stars, Springfield's all-black semi-pro baseball team from 1945 to 52. And Thompson, 75, of of Springfield, sounds more like a father than the team manager when he talks about those who made up the stars and their talents. People like catcher Howard Duncan Jr., who could sit on the ground at home plate and throw out a runner at second. Or Herman Horn, who once hit a ball out of Municipal Stadium in Kansas City. Or the Looney Brothers, who could really lay the wood on the ball and run like rabbits, he said. But to many fans, the stars were more than just a group of teenagers, railroad workers, hospital attendants, and laundry house workers who got together on warm summer weekends to play against white teams for a few dollars. In seven years and several hundred games, the team lost an estimated 25 contests, Thompson recalls. The Stars, knowingly or not, went from being a group of athletes playing for a percentage of the gate receipts to a source of deep pride to Springfield's black community. During those seven years, the team gave blacks a chance to be spectators at a sport that was barred to them. It gave them a place to find heroes. Wow. Yeah. What do you think when you see that? Oh, I... I... I do get a little emotional.
Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can access our entire library of episodes at omaha.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have suggestions on this podcast or any other, please send me a note at dirk.chatelaine at owh.com. Thanks for listening.